Take your girlie to the movies If you can't make love at home There's no little brother there who always squeals You can do an awful lot in seven reels Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 184. My name's Terry Frost, and this time we're doing a little bit of Kubrick and a little bit of Frank Perry. The Kubrick is the 1956 crime drama The Killing, starring Sterling Hayden, Elisha Cook Jr., Murray Windsor, Colleen Gray, and J.C. Flippin. Then we go to 1972 for a movie I wasn't on my radar as it should have been. It was suggested by Dylan Moss, who's a um, Patreon subscriber of the podcast. It's his choice for the podcast and it is um frank perry's 1972 movie based on a um, novel by joan didion played as its lays with uh tuesday world adam rourke and anthony perkins so sit back i'll get the contact details out of the way and the show will start paleo cinema podcast appears every two weeks it's a podcast of classic film appreciation. The rules are pretty easy to remember. Each episode is talk about two movies in it, and the movies have to be over 20 years old. Apart from that, they can be of any genre. Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I'd like to acknowledge the Korong Jung Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. Okay, so how are you all doing? Um, we're kind of fine here, mostly because I've got two weeks up. Yes, I am on vacation. We're going to spend just about a week of it up in Sydney. We're driving up on Thursday this week, uh, hanging out with the family, doing lots of groovy stuff, and in general, doing things that aren't work. Uh, and, um, yeah, so it's it's going nicely. Just came back from a walk where Sally and I walked up to uh, Kebab Van, uh, which is in a little kind of food van area about a kilometre from home. So we walked up there for dinner, came back again, and on the way back, a car almost hit me. Uh, it was a white SUV, came ripping around a corner as we were crossing. I wasn't particularly dressed in dark clothing, but this person just didn't look, and I had to do one of those kind of quick leaps to one side to avoid being a stuntman, which is is kind of um, a bit worrisome. I kind of played it cool. I don't tend to get phased by these things particularly, but Sally was with me. She was quite pissed off about it. Uh, she has this thing about me getting hit by very fast-moving and very large objects. I'm not sure why, but that's how she is. And so um, the evening was more eventful than I thought it would be. Apart from that, everything's fine, and I really am kind of sanguine about it. It uh, hasn't worried me. Had a great day today, went out to um, 
a few second-hand shops, looked around, picked up a few little bits and pieces. And, uh, yeah, first day of the vacation, just taking it easy. And the last thing I really want to do is end up a casualty of somebody's inattention. So if you're out there on the roads, be really careful because you may hit somebody as nice as me. So <laughs> moving right along, um, what have I been watching is probably the next best thing to do now that the drama is over. Okay, I've seen some pretty good films this time around, which is kind of nice. Uh, at least one good film, possibly two. Uh, the first thing I saw was The Dressmaker, the Australian film directed by Jocelyn Morehouse, starring Kate Winslet, um, Judy Davis, and a pretty good cast, including Liam Hemsworth. It's um, pretty much the story of a, a dressmaker in 1950 Australia who comes back to the town, which kind of rejected her when she was a child, thinking that she killed another child and the way she gets revenge on the town. Now, Liz Travaskas and I did this for the radio this last week and had a great time with it. And the groovy thing about this is, apart from the fact that it's got cinematography by Don McAlpine, David Hirschfelder's music is really good, and all of the acting, and there's a great large ensemble cast of Australian character actors, male and female. The thing about this movie that makes it so spectacular is... It's basically a Sergio Leone Western done as a chick flick, which nobody tells you about. Um, Jocelyn Morehouse, the director, did say it was unforgiven with the sewing machine, and it pretty much is. It's got a lot of that kind of vibe to it. It's got a spaghetti Western vibe to it in an Australian setting in 1950 with a mostly female cast, but this movie is really fucking good. I enjoyed it a lot, and it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that you can flip genres, not just kind of doing a female version of a certain kind of movie the way the Ghostbusters are doing it, but you can take a genre and flip it and stay true to the genre as well, which is really kind of an interesting approach. I don't think it's the easiest way to do it. I mean, just flipping the genre and having the women do pretty much the same as the guys do. Um, is one way of doing it, but this takes things to a new level. And if you haven't seen The Dressmaker, I highly recommend that you do so. For a women's film, uh, what used to be called a woman's film back in the 50s, it's incredibly accessible to guys. And um, see it, please. I mean, even the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema should see this and do it because it's a fantastic film and well worth your time. I picked up the Blu-ray, even though it was 40 bucks at the time. That's how much I liked it. From there, I went to Paramount Vault, which is the YouTube channel that Paramount Studios have where they actually release some of their films, and caught up with a Henry Jagalon film that I hadn't seen from about 2000 called Festival in Cannes. It's got about a bunch of actors and producers and movie makers and things like that meeting and cutting deals and things at the Festival in Cannes. And it was filmed at the Cannes Movie Festival at the time. It's got a pretty good cast too. Ron Silver's in it, Greta Skarki's in it, um, a bunch of uh, actors playing themselves in a lot of cases. Uh, kind of low-key, it's a little bit comedic, a little bit um, dramatic, a little bit Romana Clay kind of thing. But it was a bit of fun. It wasn't the best film I've seen for a long time, but I kind of enjoyed the... Uh, the dialogue sounded semi-improvised, but I think it was done quite well. And it's worth checking out if you haven't seen it. I think it might be from 1999. Uh, let's see, what else did I see? I've kind of hit an action film binge and a nostalgia binge as well. 
I did see an action film uh, called Hitman Agent 47, which I'm not going to talk about because it wasn't that good. And then we went to my friend's Jamie and Sarah's place and watched X, The Man with X-Ray Eyes, starring Ray Milland, Don Rickles, and um, Diane Vanderville's. And uh, I'd seen it not too long ago, but seeing it with friends was kind of cool. It's a Roger Corman movie from the early 1960s about a guy who develops eye drops that let him see with x-ray eyes doesn't end well as we know but uh, i kind of liked it it's kind of really well done and uh, a script by ray russell a science fiction writer amongst other things and if you haven't seen x the man with x-ray eyes i highly recommend it it's very very good for its day on a relatively low budget filmed in color and they've got this one crazy point of view shot where they basically have the back of Ray Milan's head and then they go into his skull to tell you the point of view shot from his point of view. It's kind of an ambitious little um, piece of whimsy in the film, but I really enjoyed it and got off on that. But uh, yeah, so that's pretty much all I've been watching. Apart from, I watched two telly movies that started out The Six Million Dollar Man in 1973. First one was called The Six Million Dollar Man, which is a very much darker take on the story of Steve Austin, the bionic man, than the TV series and the later television films um, would came along and did it was based on a novel by martin caden but uh that one was you know really interesting to see they had a lot of nasa kind of stock footage involved and then i saw a sequel to that called six million dollar man wine women and war which has got an interesting uh supporting cast morris evans is in it uh leaf erickson who else luciana paluzzi uh and elizabeth ashley which is kind of a, a little more of a traditional story. It's one of those things from the time that could have been for pretty much any action-adventure series, so it's a little bit generic in that sense. There is one more um, Six Million Dollar Man telly movie that I haven't watched yet, but I'll let you know how that goes when I have. But anyway, that's about it for that kind of stuff. Um, I'm going to take a break now. I'm going to get back. I'm going to do these in reverse order. I'm going to talk about Frank Perry's play it as it lays first. Um, and the other thing about Frank Perry that I found out, and this is the teaser bit for it, Frank Perry is Katy Perry's uncle, the man who directed The Swimmer and played as it lays, and Mummy Dearest, amongst other things, was actually Katy Perry's uncle. But anyway, I'll be back in a moment. If Carter and Helene want to think it happened because I was insane, I say let them. I could tell you I saw a cock in that ink blot, but why? I could give you a lot of answers, but none of them apply. Here are some typical questions the doctors here asked me. I'm to answer yes or no. Do I think a large number of people are guilty of bad sexual conduct? Do I believe my sins are unpardonable? Have I been disappointed in love? How could I answer? How could it apply? I'll tell you what I do. I try to live in the now. I watch hummingbirds. I go for a walk during visiting hours. I see no one I used to know. But then... I'm not just crazy about a lot of people. I used to ask questions. And I got the answer. 
So Plan As It Lays is a 1972 Hollywood film, not a mainstream Hollywood film in any sense, but a Hollywood film. It stars Tuesday World as Marie, Mariah Wyeth Lang, an actress, Anthony Perkins as her friend BZ, um, uh, Tammy Grimes as Helene, BZ's wife, and Adam Rourke as Carter Lang, Mariah's husband. Uh, there's a really nice little IMDb praise you for this movie. Uh, Mariah Wyeth, an ex-model and B-movie actress, strolls on the grounds of a mental hospital, recalling the traumatic events which led to her breakdown. She's married to an unfaithful, self-engrossed director, Carter Lang. Neglected by her husband, Mariah is engage- engages in a series of one-night stands and becomes pregnant. Her husband divorces her and she has an illegal abortion. Mariah's only friend is BZ, a homosexual movie director. World-weary, he tells Mariah that he's discovered the meaning of life is nothing. He invites her to commit suicide with him. So that's pretty much it with the movie. Uh, it was directed by Frank Perry, who people know most of all from that fantastic Burt Lancaster movie in 1968, The Swimmer. Uh, it was based on a novel by Joan Didion, and the screenplay was written by Joan Didion and her husband, John Gregory Dunn, in collaboration with Frank Perry. In fact, they did that thing where they took each scene from the novel and made um, an index card of it and then had a great big um, board put up in a hotel room where they rearranged the scenes, first in chronological order, then in the order they wanted them for the movie. And Didion and Dunn then went away and wrote the script based on that. Uh, It's a process that um, kind of works really well for this kind of non-linear narrative. And I think it holds together really nicely in there. Um, Frank Perry said that the first thing you do when you don't want to write is you go to you go nuts in a stationery store, and that's exactly what they did for this one. Now, Tuesday World, interesting actor. Um, she had a, a troubled life. She was kind of dominated by her mother to a certain extent, and was known to be very promiscuous in the early 1960s during her career, which kind of put her on the outer with the prudes in Hollywood. She had affairs with much older men, including the actor John Ireland, but eventually she kind of got her shit together and through her career, which uh, goes up till fairly recently as well. Just give me a look at the IMDb on Tuesday World. Uh, she's, you know, she's one of those actors who was incredibly pretty, not stunningly beautiful, but pretty. And uh, her acting for that reason was kind of underestimated. She was in a great deal of good movies. Um, the last IMDb credit was 2001. She was in Once Upon a Time in America, Falling Down with Michael Douglas, Thief, The Cincinnati Kid, um, a really nice movie, which she also did with Anthony Perkins called Pretty Poison, which I should do for a future podcast. She did some TV work, The Fugitive. Uh, she was in a movie called Soldier in the Rain, which is really interesting. She was also the kind of lust interest in the TV series The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis from 1959 to 1962, the one with Dwayne Hickman and Bob Denver in it. And, uh, you know, she kind of did some TV stuff. Uh, she did an episode of Route 66 and Naked City and Ben Casey and that kind of thing. But, um, and she was also fantastic in a 1970 film, which I saw a couple of years ago called I Walk the Line, directed by John Frankenheimer. Uh you know, underestimated definitely as an actor, and in this one, she's 
on screen a lot of the time and her Mariah is um, the kind of a character that Hollywood doesn't want to talk about for the, in the sense that um, kind of minor minor celebrity actors are insecure about playing this kind of role, but Tuesday World went for it. And her Mariah is kind of not suited to Hollywood. She kind of doesn't get Hollywood the way she does the hometown she came from. And she doesn't buy the bullshit for Hollywood in a lot of ways. One of the first first things we see in the movie is her driving in an open-top convertible down a desert highway shooting at road signs with a pistol. And that gives you the kind of don't-give-a-fuck attitude that Mariah, the character, has. And um, it's it's quite a, a stunning visual as well, and it shows that kind of recklessness, dangerousness, and disrespect that the character has. Then we have BZ, played by Anthony Perkins, uh, a gay actor playing a gay movie director who's married to a woman, basically in being in the closet to the extent that you had to be in Hollywood at the time. And Perkins is very good in this film too. He's not as young as he was in things like Psycho and On the Beach and those other movies. But he's still a very good-looking guy and charismatic as all hell. Uh, He was 40 at the time this movie was made. And there's a kind of world-weariness to Anthony Perkins that comes out in the character. Uh, As we know, he died of um, age-related illness in the 1990s, but still had a great career. And he is good-looking and charismatic in this film. He's... um, the best friend with Mariah. They are kind of soulmates in a lot of ways and they they understand each other more than the other characters in the movie. Roger Ebert had a lot to say about this film. And one of the things he said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, which is really kind of interesting, is that in during the length, during the run of the movie, we as an audience get to like characters that don't like themselves. In this case, Mariah and BZ. Now, the other actors in the movie are kind of interesting as well. Uh, Let me just bring up the IMDb. Sorry, I'm all over the place today. Adam Rourke as Carter Lang. Adam Rourke, you might remember from things like The Stuntman. His career kind of went on a downer when he made The Stuntman with Peter O'Toole in 1980. For the simple reason that he um, was a drinking mate with Peter O'Toole and tried to keep up with Peter O'Toole um, on the off-set drinking during the making of that film and ended up getting uh, Deliria Tremens, which is kind of alcohol-related delirium, and was hospitalised for it. Delirium Tremens comes about when, um, when, you, when you drink a lot. What happens is you sleep too deeply to dream so you know you you kind of basically pass out but you're at a level of sleep where that necessary integration of the day's events into your long-term memory and into your worldview doesn't happen so over a period of time of getting that kind of almost coma-like sleep eventually you go pretty gaga and um, you can have a breakdown because of it and that's what delirium tremens is and Adam Rourke had that, and his career was never quite the same after that. He did a movie in 1982, a kind of 
tits and ass comedy called The Beach Girls and a few other things, but his career never picked up from it, even though he was on a fairly good arc at the time. Uh, he started out doing things like biker films in the 1960s. And he's very good as Carter Lang, the kind of self-centered director who's made a movie called Angel Beach, a biker film, oddly enough, starring Mariah, where, um, and now he's making his second film, and he's got something that I kind of know a little bit about, which is imposter syndrome. He doesn't know whether he's going to be able to do it well. He's um, self-centered and egotistical and focused on the job he has to do making a film. But in that he loses his relationship with Mariah. Now, both of them are having affairs with other people. And while he's away making the movie, she becomes pregnant to another man, played oddly enough by Richard Anderson, who played Oscar Goldman in The Six Million Dollar Man. And then goes off and has an abortion. And we do spend a little bit of time with the abortion. Chuck McCann, a very good comedic actor, plays the character who drives her to the abortionist. And the illegal abortion process is shown in some detail. And Mariah has some flashbacks to it later on. The kind of impersonality of it and the... um, clinical and cynical nature of the illegal but you know it's still safe abortion that she has really is um kind of disturbing and of course this may also be perry having his say about the roe versus wade thing as well and joan didion of course and john gregory dunn um illegal abortions are are, it costs her a thousand dollars for a start which is totally outrageous and it's seen as an incredibly unpleasant experience which takes into account in absolutely no way whatsoever the emotional needs of the woman. And that's very disturbing in, in the Oak way. And the prosaic way that um, Chuck McCann's character talks to her while he's driving her to the place where the abortion takes place emphasizes and underlines that clinical um, business-like nature of the um, abortion process as it was then. And, yeah, it's quite an unpleasant piece in the film. Now, Beezy and um, and Mariah have a good relationship and you've got that rapport between Anthony Perkins and Tuesday World which makes it really work nicely. It, it really, um, th- their characters do feel lived in because of that. And they're really, um, as as Ebert said, we come to like characters who don't like themselves, and they're talking about death and the meaningless of meaninglessness of life, and and that kind of thing, and that kind of estrangement and disattachment from reality that they have, even though they're in a very privileged position, being where they are, they're um, not poor people. And they're, um, they, you know, they hang around beach houses and drink alcohol and have nice apartments and all that kind of thing. And ultimately, this leads to BZ taking his own life and Mariah supporting him in that, which then leads to her breakdown and her being institutionalised. No spoilers in that because it's in all, it's kind of alluded to it towards the front of the film in some ways. And um, that voiceover that I played at the start... Oops, I just dropped something. Sorry about that. I fidget when I talk on the podcast. I apologise. 
yeah, basically it's foreshadowed at the start of the film, so it's not really a spoiler that that occurs. And the death of BZ is shown in a very tender way, which is, you know, he um, has some pills and, and drinks alcohol with them, and he and Mariah um, are laying on a bed, comforting each other. If you're going to have euthanasia, and of course I think it's a right that people should have under, along with some protections, of course, um, this shows the process as being a gentle and loving thing in the way that it's done. So it's kind of, the movie transgresses from normal 1972 social mores in a number of ways. First off, they got the illegal abortion and the, the proof that that's an ugly thing and that it's not a way that this kind of uh, um, operation should occur. You've got the assisted, in some ways, suicide of BZ, which is kind of something that people are still arguing about all this time later. And you also have the language in the film. I mean, this is probably the second film I know of in Hollywood where the word cunt is used. The first one was a year earlier in Carnal Knowledge and it's said by Jack Nicholson. But in this movie, the word cunt gets said by Anthony Perkins. And I think it's the second Hollywood film where that word does get uttered. And it's in context too. Uh, it, It kind of really flows as a natural part of the conversation even though it's shocking and we don't expect to see it in a movie from the 1970s it's not at all gratuitous and yes in case you're asking I did look up the history of the word cunt in cinema and found out that it was Jack Nicholson in Carnal Knowledge who first dropped that particular C-bomb in cin- in American cinema at least uh, this movie's a little bit hard to find as well I did find a, a torrent copy of it but it is available in a fairly good print on YouTube. I'm not sure whether it's an authorised one. I suspect that it isn't. But while it's there, if you just type in Played As It Lays 1972 for Movie, you'll find it. Um, and it's worth. that's a better one than the one I watched. In fact, this movie, I want to see it again because I saw. it's one of those movies where the, you can lose the detail not seeing it multiple times. And you get more bang for your buck then, of course. You know, if you see a movie, if you need to see a movie a couple of times to fully understand it, to grok it in fullness, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's a movie that what I'll probably do is I'll wait six months or so. And then I'll watch it again to kind of, you know, let it wash over me again. Because a lot of it is the feelings of the characters. And with that non-linear, chopped-up narrative where they jump back and forth through time, not in a confusing way. Uh, it bears very close paying attention to and I've got enough respect for Frank Perry as a director having seen The Swimmer which for me is one of the best American mainstream movies of the 1960s I very very much want to see this movie again Um, and also it falls into a genre or a sub-genre that I have an enormous fondness for and that is movies about Hollywood that aren't prettied up and glossied up Things like The Big Knife and The Bad and the Beautiful and Two Weeks in Another Town. This movie's on a continuum with them where it's not... Um, and also the um, the play What Makes Sammy Run, which was done as a TV adaptation and as a musical. Um, it's a, a quite a more honest view of 
Hollywood than you normally get from Hollywood. And there's, I mean, it probably plays into a certain amount of self-loathing that uh, that particular industry has for itself in some ways. Less so these days. I think Hollywood has become such a well-oiled and cybernetic machine that that kind of introspection and um, looking behind the facade doesn't really occur in modern film very much. There is a, a, a couple, There are a couple of films that kind of address Hollywood celebrity in various ways. The most recent one that I recall seeing is Chris Rock's movie Top 5 with Rosario Dawson in it, which I, uh, I spoke about on a previous podcast briefly, and which I recommend. I think it's a, a good film, and I really like what it does with um, that kind of Hollywood celebrity and the way that it chews up and alters people. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this movie, I'm, I'm not sure yet. I probably will have to see it again before I can make a definitive opinion on it. But what I've seen so far, I like, and um, I like the fact that it's honest about the emotions of its characters. And um, somebody else, one of the reviews I read online said about the film too, that it's a very good film based on a not particularly good novel. And sometimes that can work. Um, it just depends on the artistry that brought to bear on it, I suppose. And nonetheless, I, I'm, and also the fact that Joan Didion got the chance to restructure her novel by putting those um, index cards up on a punch board and um, kind of moving things around a little bit and having the input of John Gregory Dunn and of Frank Perry probably helped that process and probably improved the work, at least as far as the cinematic adaptation is concerned. I recommend you see the film anyway and, and let me know what you think because um, it wasn't on my radar until Dylan brought it to my attention even though I did know some of Frank Perry's other work. And on the face of it, when you kind of you know, look it up when you first hear about the movie, it doesn't really have a lot that makes you absolutely have to see the film immediately. But I like it. I think also having uh, a main character that's a woman really helps with this because so many of those kind of acid Hollywood movies that are, you know, the pens dipped in acid when they write it, tend to focus on the men. The uh, Charlie Castle character, for instance, in The Big Knife, it's very much seen from his viewpoint. And to have that flipped around and to see Hollywood in an unflattering light with a viewpoint character who's a woman really kind of flips this one around in in an interesting way. Uh, Even things like The Player and things like that are seen from a male point of view. And, of course, there's... The argument, too, that Hollywood, right up until fairly recent times, and even into the modern times, is very much a sausage fest when it comes to power. And guys, overwhelmingly, are the decision makers in Hollywood. That's slowly evolving and slowly changing, hopefully. And But at particularly in 1972, it was very much the case that guys made the decisions. They were the money people. They were the... Um, overwhelmingly the directors there were very few female directors with the exceptions of people like Ida Lupino amongst others and to have this movie come out where it even kind of subtly challenges that viewpoint and the other thing I like about it too is it gives a very good role to Tuesday World uh, the role 
works well and it's a strong female character who lives life on her own terms but is kind of lost at the same time she has affairs just as her husband does she makes her own decisions about things but she's alienated and kind of disaffected and she's a sort of person who shouldn't really be in Hollywood even though she's having a certain level of success and her husband's this director who's had an enormously successful arty biker film we get the strong impression from the movie that she's the right person in the wrong place and that even though she has that kind of alienation and disaffection and um, depression in in a lot of ways there's still hope that she'll get her shit together and the movie ends on a very defiant note I'm not going to do a spoiler on that it's not an overstated thing she doesn't blow up shit or set things on fire as happens in a in say a movie like The Dresser but and that's a slight spoiler but what the fuck um but there is that note of kind of defiant nihilism that the movie ends on which really kind of works for me and as I said I want to see the movie again I want to have some time to digest what I saw in the first viewing and then come back at it again and see if I can kind of fill in the gaps because I think this movie to fully respect it you've got to have that second viewing of it but anyway I'm going to take a break now when I get back I'm going to talk about a very different film and a very much more masculine film from 1956 and it's Stanley Kubrick's wonderful The Killing starring Sterling Hayden, Murray Windsor and a cast of character actors that is quite impressive. You know what I'd like to have? What? I'd like to have a house on the beach and some rocks and on the rocks I'd like to have some mussels and I'd gather them every day and cook them with cake. Be very pretty. You know what the muscles would turn out to be? Toxic. (laughs) (laughs) This is a commercial as you may have guessed. And this was the advertising agency's idea. Totally unnecessary. I am simply here to tell you about Martin's, the new king-size cigarette. We have something simply great. They're made from extraordinarily good tobacco. It's quite amazing. They can do it for the price. Martins and the handsome gold pack have a quality. A quality you can trust. Produce a cigarette that must we dance. That's so extraordinary nice. Alice Martins is a must. A quality that you can trust. The things one does. The things one believes. That was a little Australian uh, TV commercial from the 1970s starring that acting icon and outrageously gay character, Frank Thring, who people might remember from Ben-Hur because he was Pontius Pilate who dropped that handkerchief that started the chariot race in Ben-Hur. 
like Frank Thring a lot, uh, Australia has a, an inordinate fondness for him, uh, one of the great theatrical queens of the 20th century in Australia. So let's move on to the 1956 crime drama, The Killing, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring uh, Sterling Hayden, Murray Windsor, a, uh, J.C. Flippin, and a bunch of other people. Elijah Cook Jr.'s in there, Vince Edwards, just a fantastic cast. Give or take a few thousand. I figure the loot on this deal at two million. There should be that much in the track offices. You like money. You got a great big dollar sign there where most women have a heart. So play it smart. Stay in character and you'll have money. Plenty of it. George will have it. He'll blow it all on you. Johnny, I'm no good for anybody else. I'm not pretty and I'm not very smart, so... Come on, clown, sing us a chorus from Pagliacci. Where's the jerk? Where's George? The Killing is a 1956 film noir directed by Stanley Kubrick. Johnny Clay masterminds a racetrack heist. They're going to rob the cash room from the racetrack. And he's planned this for a couple of years. So he gets together a group of accomplices and they plan and carry out the heist but there's a complication and that is that one of the people involved a guy called um george Petey, played by elisha cook jr has told his wife sherry that the heist is going on he spilled the beans basically and sherry unknown to george is having an affair with a gangster called val cannon played by vince edwards of course, Sherry being the greedy, um, conniving and um, cuckolding wife tells Val all about it and Val decides that he's going to grab the money from these people after the heist. Uh, the cast in this one is pretty damn good. I really like it in a lot of ways. You've got Sterling Hayden playing Johnny Clay, mastermind of the thing. Very typical Sterling Hayden role. Sterling Hayden was an actor who acted basically to finance trips on his boat so he had a yacht and um, he'd make a movie and then spend a couple of months cruising around on his yacht in the Caribbean or in the South Seas and then come back again and do another movie not the kind of thing Hollywood wanted their actors to do but Hayden did that and made some interesting smaller films because of it his screen never reached the heights of other similarly gifted actors because of um, his attitude to acting. Uh, his wife, his girlfriend Faye, or wife, it's not really sure which it is, uh, is played by Colleen Gray, an interesting actor who was also in Nightmare Alley. Uh, we've got, as I said, Vince Edwards playing Val Cannon. He has about three good scenes in this one. And one of the accomplices is a character called Marvin Unger, played by J.C. Flippant. And there's an interesting scene in the film between... Johnny Clay and Marvin uh, they're old friends and accomplices and there's an implication that they may have been in jail together and by 
slightly oblique essaying, it's pretty clear that Marvin is gay and Marvin has an interest in Johnny that's not really um, non-carnal, if you know what I mean. And that that kind of brings an interesting dynamic to the movie, which there are a couple of film noirs of about this time which did kind of telegraph that some of the characters were gay. The other one that really comes to mind is The Big Combo, with the two gay gangsters, Fante and Mingo, played by Earl Holliman and Lee Van Cleef. But this one does it as well, and it's not really judgmental about him particularly, which is kind of respectful, and it plays well to a modern audience. Uh, they've also got a policeman, a corrupt policeman involved, uh, Ted DeCorsia's character Randy Kennan, uh, Marie Windsor, of course, B-movie siren of the time, playing Sherry, and she's really good in it. She's seen a lot wearing lingerie, and she had big, beautiful eyes, and um, one of the great unsung evil females in film noir then you've got of course Elisha Cook Jr who had an enormously long career playing basically weak characters uh, he played Wilma the Gunsel for instance in um, The Maltese Falcon and did a number of really good film noirs then there's Mike O'Reilly the barman at the racetrack they need him involved as well played by a character actor called Joe Sawyer who was great drinking buddies with John Ford Joe Sawyer, you might re- um, remember, played one of the soldiers in the TV series of Rin Tin Tin for a long time. Uh, kind of looks like an Irish mug, and, and the surname Sawyer gives you the idea, and he played a lot of Irish characters. He's actually of German descent. His original name was Sauer. But um, Joe Sawyer did have that uh, kind of look about him that led him to play working-class Irish characters. Um, there's a black actor called James Edwards who plays a a parking attendant at the racetrack and has some really good scenes with another character played by um, a cult film icon in some ways Timothy Carey. He plays Nicky Arcane who basically supplies the weapons for the um, heist. One of the distractions they're going to have during the heist is they're going to shoot a race horse during one of the races as a distraction and Nicky's job is to park his sports car um, in an appropriate position on the racetrack and use a high-powered rifle to shoot the horse. That has complications as the track parking attendant um, gets involved with it and uh, kind of puts a kibosh on it after a little bit. I'm not going to spoil it too much. And the other interesting character is um, a guy called Kola Krariani who was a professional wrestler and um, also played chess, and he plays a chess-playing wrestler in the movie, uh, who's used as a distraction to get Johnny Clay into the cash room. And Kolo Kwariani, um, very thick accent. It's very hard to understand what he's saying in some parts of the movie. But um, he has an enormous fight scene where he's basically fighting 15 different guys, leaping on him, the cops are leaping on him, um, in the bar at the racetrack. And one of the interesting things about that part of it is... In the background, one of the extras is actually Rodney Dangerfield, a young Rodney Dangerfield. I did freeze frame the Blu-ray. And sure enough, at the far end of the bar, about the second person from the end of the bar, as the fight starts in the killing, is Rodney Dangerfield, um, which is kind of cool. I like that a lot. Now, the movie um, had an interesting genesis as well. It was based on 
uh, a book which uh, was doing the rounds in Hollywood to get the rights to it. A book called Clean Break by a guy called Lionel White, who wrote a whole bunch... This was his first novel, but before that he wrote a whole bunch of those true confession kind of crime stories for pulp magazines. But Clean Break, he... um, he wrote, it owes a little bit to Asphalt Jungle, the movie The Asphalt Jungle. But I don't think it suffers because of that. It has its own kind of arc and its own path. And even though it may have been influenced by that, it's not a copy of The Asphalt Jungle. There are a couple of characters that are similar. But the people, the person who wrote the screenplay, along with Stanley Kubrick worked with him to make sure that uh, the characters varied a little bit from the Asheville jungle and took the characters and the plot further away from the Asheville jungle. And I just hit something again when I'm gesturing while I talk. Took it further away. And that person was one of the great crime writers of the time, a guy called Jim Thompson, who wrote, amongst other things, The Killer Inside Me. Thompson was an interesting and very flawed character. He was an alcoholic. He was unreliable. He was living in, uh, I think, Connecticut at the time. Uh, but Kubrick wanted him to do the dialogue. He'd read Thompson's work, he liked what he saw, and he was very aware of his own limitations in that part of a screenplay writing. And so he got Thompson to do it, gave him $10,000, and Thompson did the job. And the dialogue in this movie has that quirkiness that Jim Thompson is known for, and it really works well to... Uh, enhance the film noir aspects and to make it a very nice little crime film. The other problem that Kubrick and uh, James Harris, the producer, had was, well, there were a number of problems. One of them was the fact that um, United Artists only put up $200,000 for the budget. And the it was about a $380,000 budget. And Harris himself had to put up the rest of the money which he never got back. The movie only made $30,000 within two years of its initial release. And so they sold the rights back to United Artists at that time and used the money to buy a property that they wanted to produce, a movie called Lolita. So it all swings around about so it all works out in the end. But the other problem that they had was that the um, cinematographer, Lucien Ballard, very well-respected cinematographer, couldn't get the documentary look that Kubrick and Harris wanted for the film. He, he just wasn't his style. He was a studio kind of guy. He was great with the um, set-bound parts of the movie, but he really wasn't um, up to the location shooting in the style that Kubrick wanted. He wanted it to all to be, you know, look like at a race course. So uh, eventually what happened was the associate producer of the film, a guy called Alexander Singer, took a camera out to the racetrack they wanted to film at and did it himself. He used what's called a clockwork IMO camera. Basically it winds up and then has 30 metres of film in it and he just shot a whole bunch of really good location stuff with the race crowds, the horses going around, getting that kind of vibe about it and... It worked really well in the film, um, just basically by getting a guy with a wind-up camera to go out and film this thing. It's all in beautiful black and white, so there wasn't the problem you have with filming in Technicolor. And it works beautifully. Uh, having the location shooting, I think film noir works well with locations. Um, at night time, of course, you've got incredible uh, 
problems with the lighting if you want to get that film noir look with the lighting. But during the daytime at a racetrack, um, the documentary feeling of it works well. And also from our viewpoint, um, 60, nearly 60 years later, actually 60 years later, um, the interesting thing about doing these location shoots is we see, again, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, how people dressed and how people looked, uh, the body shapes, the um, clothing, all that kind of stuff, all that kind of fine detail, which at the time people just didn't notice, is something that we now notice in films. We go, okay, well, you know, the women wore those funny little hats and white gloves and the men all wore suits, even if they were just wearing a um, polo shirt underneath it. You know, those kind of details I love in movies old films and there's less affectation to those bits on a location shoot where they use real people in real crowds and um, that stuff always fascinates me and it also adds to putting the story across because having the documentary style to it lets us believe the fiction that these people are real and they're doing these real things. Um, Sterling Hayden a uh, good writer too, by the way. If you get a chance to read any of his books, including Wanderer, where he talks about travelling the seas, beautifully evocative writer, a little bit Jack Londony, and um, his stuff I definitely recommend. But uh, that's just a side note. Uh, one of the things I like about this film is it's dead simple. The crime itself, the carrying out of, you know, going into the cash room and getting the money and escaping with the money is the simplest part of this film. It really does work well. And because it's so well planned out and because Johnny Clay and his team, with a couple of exceptions, are pretty um, professional about it, everything does kind of plan out really well. And there's that iconic scene where um, Johnny Clay puts on a clown mask and a hat and, and a kind of slightly down disheveled suit and does the job wearing a clown mask. And that clown mask is kind of an Emmett Kelly sort of clown mask. And it's um, kind of an iconic look. In fact, if you look on Facebook, there's a gif of the male characters in Stanley Kubrick movies, and one of them is Johnny Clay with that mask. Um, Now, of course, things don't go well. This, of course, being a film in the 1950s, everything has to go tits up at some stage, and indeed it does. Um, Mostly due not... Well, I mean, part of it is the fact that um, George spills his guts to um, his wife, Sherry, and um, Val Cannon gets involved, and there's a big shootout between them, which kind of goes very chaotically the way a real shootout would. Uh, And then um, Johnny has to escape with a large suitcase that he buys in a second-hand store filled with over $2 million of the proceeds of the crime. Um, the basically, I'm not. It's not too much of a spoiler to say that I don't get away with it. And there's a wonderful scene where, at an airport, the money is um, falls out of the suitcase and is caught in the propeller wash of an airplane. And there's something very, very beautiful about this big, enormous block of cash being swirled around and and whirled around and slowly decreased and thrown up in the air and thrown away um, by the propeller backwash. And I don't know quite how they filmed it, but they managed to make it beautiful and lyrical. And um, there's a kind of 
nihilistic resignation in Johnny Clay at the airport, which kind of fits film noir nicely. He's kind of going, okay, yeah, fair enough, you've got me, rather than trying to escape, which um, Faye tries to encourage him to do, but Johnny just just realised no, no, that, yeah, I'm not going to be getting away. I've got, got my girlfriend slash wife with me, and it's really not going to work for me to try to flee um, the rap for this crime, which I found really interesting, that kind of resignation, that kind of world weariness that Sterling Hayden brings to that role. It, it's a fitting ending, and you, even though this guy's a criminal, you feel a lot of sympathy for Johnny Clay. He's aspirational, uh, as indeed are a lot of the other people as well. Um, George is, wants to be part of the crime so that he can um, spend the money on Sherry, thinking he can keep his wife by bribing her, essentially. Um, Joe Sawyer's character has an invalid wife, which um, shows... Basically, a lot of the characters are fleshed out in interesting ways and in ways that make us sympathetic to them, which I kind of like. Uh, there's a... Um, real-worldness to the way these characters are portrayed. Just in the little scenes, the bits with Joe Sawyer's character and his wife are kind of tender and um, because he's a caregiver. Uh, we have a lot of sympathy for his character, even though he's basically a bartender at a racetrack. In spite of that, um, we, we kind of uh, like him for the fact that his motives are altruistic. He wants to get his wife in operation so she'll be well. And um, we have less sympathy for George, who's basically a weak human being, who's in a marriage that's wrong for him. He, his wife's greedy and venal and nasty, but he wants to keep her. So, you know, he got that love. The fucking he's getting is not worth the fucking he's getting kind of um, love thing happening there. And Johnny with Faye, um, his relationship is... Um, you know, aspirational and, and um, they are in love and he wants the best for her. So there's there's a range of different character types in here and of course the reason that um, Unger, the character played by J.C. Flippin' wants to be a part of this is because he wants to be close to Johnny. He's got strong feelings for Johnny. So um, I, li- I like that, the fact that they don't just kind of do the cliches in these things, even though George and Sherry their dynamic can be seen as a cliche. The way Elisha Cook Jr. and um, Murray Windsor play it really works well. And seeing her also with Vince Cannon, the um, character played by Vince Edwards, uh, Val Cannon, sorry. Um, it's, yeah, we, we get kind of more complex characters than you usually get in this kind of film. And that makes it worthwhile and the other part about it I like is I um, keep making comparisons to these things so I apologise in advance for that I compare them to the um, Bob Bedica read off Scott Westerns in the fact that this is a crime caper movie paired to the bare minimum it's kind of lean and um, fast paced and there's uh, you've got that weird but lyrical dialogue of Jim Thompson's. You've got Stanley Kubrick's wonderful camera work and the way he films the scenes is innovative and, and beautifully done. And on a relatively small budget, even for a big picture, a $380,000 budget. Oh, sorry, 280, I think it is 280, 320 or something like that. 
it was still a small budget uh, and uh, he had to fight the studio for this as well United Artists wanted to not have somebody who costs as much as Sterling Hayden to get kind of a, a has-been actor and to film all of the movie on sets rather than on locations to save money so that they could be sure to um, reap a profit from it but the producers um, stuck to their guns and made a film that's had a long tail and is very worthwhile. And it's also, even though it didn't make money, it was very good for the producers and for Kubrick as well because it brought them to the attention of, amongst other people, Kirk Douglas, who decided that um, he wanted to have Kubrick direct Paths of Glory. And then, of course, onward to Spartacus. So from the for the career arc of the people involved, it was very good. Sterling Hayden's career kind of plattered out. I mean, he did play General Jack Ripper in Doctor Strangelove with Kubrick, which is good. But his um, career kind of plattered out. He was a bit fond of the marijuana, which is not a bad thing necessarily. But between his passion for sailing the seas and chuffing dope... Um, <laughs> His career didn't go anywhere, pretty much. I mean, he, he lived the kind of life on his own terms, and, and all respect to him for that. But um, as far as the movie career is concerned, it didn't particularly go anywhere wonderful. Nonetheless, I like Sterling Hayden as an actor, and anything I see him in, he's always had a kind of integrity. Even a mad thing like uh, Last Man on Earth, also known as The Final Program, where he plays... Um, a military procurement guy in one small scene with John Finch. He's a lot of fun to watch, and he's um, yeah, he's got that honesty which he carried on from his personal life. He was openly honest with the studios about the fact that he wanted to um, sail the seas and just finance that with the film work. The uh, the only negative thing I could find about Sterling Hayden was the fact that he was shit scared by the House on American Activities Committee stuff and sailed off to escape them essentially took off in his boat to escape them which is not but you know looking back on it from our viewpoint not necessarily a bad thing to do i mean pissing off and being not able to be found in the south seas is a good way to avoid those wretched bastards having their hooks into you but anyway um the killing is a, a fine film it's uh there's an Australian one, the Cinema Cult put out, an Australian Blu-ray of it, which is very bare bones, but a very nice print. And that's the one that I watched, and it's like 10 bucks or something like that if you shop around at JB Hi-Fi. And getting a movie of this quality and this importance for that kind of price is always a good deal for me. Um, yeah, it's an honest film noir. It's solidly done. We invest in the characters, we invest in the caper, and it's got one of the great downbeat endings of this kind of cinema where yeah, the the characters we come to care about don't get what they want but on the other hand Johnny Clay doesn't die so that's always a good thing but anyway I'm going to take a break now when I get back we're going to wrap this up I'm re-recording the credits as well because the credits for some reason got really scratchy and horrible so I'm going to re-record the credits so I'm going to play a little bit of music and then when I get back we're going to do the into the podcast.
That was the late, great Ricky May with his version from the early 1960s in a New Zealand pressing of The Hucklebuck. And, as usual, here's the end of the show. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank the Patreon subscribers as well who are always there to um, enable me to buy a few new movies now and then and to keep the podcast hosting going, so I appreciate that as well. Um, I'm off to Sydney in two days' time, so I will be pre-recording the next Martian Driving podcast, and um, that'll be nicely out of the way, and it'll be released as usual on the weekend. This one's a couple of days late, so I do apologise for that, but I was slacking off because because it's my vacation. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. And now, here is the new credit sequence. And now, here are the podcast credits. I'd like to thank Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our musical director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armand, our key grip. Matt, um, our rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tamora, the donut wrangler. Tim, the New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Solomon, our werewolf consultant. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., our set photographer. And the two extras, Mark D. and David L. Thank you to all of the podcast supporters. (laughs) 